Hello and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be chatting to Steve Tillotson, the creator of Untitled Apes Epic Adventure and co-creator of the Comely Girls and Manly Boy Annuals, all about his life and work in comics. But up first, some Avery Hill publishing news. Since our last episode, we've seen the announcement of some awards and best of 2018 lists where a few Avery Hill publishing titles have won or been nominated. We enjoyed great success at the Broken Frontier Awards, with Christina Baczynski and Tim Bird both picking up nominations and Kat Chapman and Tilly Warden taking home awards while we were delighted to be named Best Publisher. Tilly won the awards for Best Artist and Best Graphic Novel for Honor Sunbeam, which was also listed in Best of lists from the likes of Publishers Weekly, Gaze the Word, The Washington Post and the New York Public Library. Cat picked up the award for Best Graphic Nonfiction for Follow Me In and was also mentioned in the end of the year list of places like Gosh Comics, The Quietus and The Comics Journal. And just this week, Luke Healy has got an amazing five separate nominations at the Irish Comic News Awards, including Best Writer, Best Artist and Best Comic for Permanent Press. Congratulations to all our creators for their awards and nominations over the last 12 months. And now, here's some information on another comics podcast you may enjoy. In the monthly radio show on comics, Panel Borders, you can hear Alan Moore. You see this gradual rehabilitation of Godzilla. Sandy Toxvig. There's something about the cartoon world that, honestly, in these grim times, is rather preferable to flesh and blood sometimes. Chris Riddell. I have a draw in my studio. Um, it's the naughty draw. And many more writers and artists talking about their craft. More info at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. We're expanding our shop spotlight section into a broader comic shop news section from this month with all the latest information on events and offers from some of our favourite shops. On Wednesday the 30th of January, it's the latest instalment of Gosh Comics monthly Drink and Draw. That involves meeting in the shop itself at 6.30 and then being taken to a nearby pub for an evening's drawing-related fun. Gosh can be found at 1 Berwick Street, in Soho in London. Also at Gosh on Tuesday the 12th of February there's a talk with Ryan Holmberg who is an expert on manga and he'll be discussing the work of uh, Yuichi Yokoyama just ahead of a new book coming out from Breakdown Press. That will be starting at 7.30 on that evening. And then later that week on Friday the 15th of February there's a signing for the latest issue of Satanic Mojo at Orbital Comics. And that features Jason Atomic, Crent Abel and Gary Leach. That's all starting at 7pm and Orbital Comics can be found at 8 Great Newport Street, also in London. A little further afield, in Devon, Nash Comics are offering a great jumping on point for any new readers or people that you'd like to introduce to comics. They put together a monthly deal which involves you getting four issues of new comics for £12.50 plus postage and packaging. And all the comics that will be sent out to you are either first issues or the first issues of new story arcs. So they're ideal samplers for new series and new stories. The comics are sent out bagged and boarded and could be a great gift for someone who wants to get into comics, particularly with the recent success of the superhero movies. And these titles will be picked by the in-store experts at Nash Comics. You can find more details at nashcomics.co.uk. And now, I'll chat with Steve Tillerson. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you. Am I right in thinking this is your second ever podcast? According to my research, this seems likely. No, I think it's, I think it's the third. 
Um, ah, I did I missed one. awesome, awesome comics ah, podcast. Right. And I did Hugh Rain's Sudcast. So this is this is the third one. Sudcast is the one that I found and yeah. listened to. It's a great premise for a podcast, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. I, no. I don't know how much, how much longevity it's got. <laughs> but, <laughs> people are always watching yeah. their dishes. Like, when are people going to stop taking baths? Um, just to let people know, basically the premise is, I only, I've only listened to your episodes, so I don't know how far yeah. it takes it, but the idea is that your pal Hugh goes round to people's houses to interview them while they do the washing up, or yeah. he, or he's in the bath, or he reviews, and he reviews bubble bath. It's basically bubble related, bubble and washing related uh, chat and other comedy stuff as well. It's very good, good premise. That, that breaks it down pretty well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, it's it's pretty fun. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a good friend of mine, Hugh. So uh, I was listening out for it. Yeah. The only issue I, I had with it was I'm pretty sure at the start he said. I go around to someone's house and help them with the washing up. But in reality, from listening to it, you were very much doing the washing up, and he's just putting you off doing the washing up, isn't he? Yeah, he was stood next to me while I was doing the washing well, up. I so. assume one of you's washing, one of you's drying. I mean, he's, get, he's not getting involved, is he? No, he wasn't. I was, yeah, it was going in the washing up rack. Yeah, that's a, so, you know, I gave it two stars. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I also did, a few years ago, I did the Awesome Comics podcast and it was an episode about sex, oh, which right. is uh, not exactly my uh, specialist subject. So uh, <laughs> I, did, I didn't talk much about that. But um, the, yeah, we we talked about um, the book. It was a, a, just before around the time of Untitled Ape, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think of any sexual content in there. I mean, no, even the the husband and wife narwhal split up, didn't they? Yeah, no, it's not. It's not blue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not. It's not your end of the pier stuff, is it? No. <laughs> I was also fascinating sort of like doing my uh, reading to sort of not quite discover your secret origin, but like just understanding that you come from, you don't come from necessarily a directly a, a, a comics background or comics weren't your first sort, of, first sort of forays into art. No, I, um, well, I did, I trained as a fine artist, so um, I did a degree and then did my master's at the Royal College of Art and did printmaking. So that was my my sort of pieces for my uh, master's show were etched steel, like big big sheets of steel that were etched, sort of drawn etchings into it and then painted on that. So they had sort of quite nice textures to them. And um, some of the steel was rusty as well. So it was all about sort of this texture and, you know, the dissolving and not really comic at all. But at that time, because um, Gareth, Brooks was on my course so uh, around that time that's when we sort of started getting into comics together so you know the, there was sort of an inkling there but yeah it didn't didn't sort of you know I'd always had an interest in comics but I was I was doing the uh, the proper proper fine art route at that stage um, when when my sort of interest in comics was was peaked. And one of the things you, you've mentioned in terms of redirecting your energy towards comics was the scope for humour you felt was greater in, in comics than fine art, and that's certainly something that obviously is reflected in your work. Yeah, I mean, the the art world has not got a very good sense of humour, in, in my uh, in my opinion, and it was, yeah, it was nice to have a bit of an outlet, because, you know, that's that's what I enjoy, you know, and that's, that's what I'm like. I do, I do sort of veer towards the sort of humour and darkly funny things, so, you know, it was it was sort of starting to provide an outlet for that really and there's a practical aspect as well isn't there in uh, in terms of you know 
uh, again, in, in an interview I'd, I'd read that you did before, you were talking about just the practicality of not having access to studio space through the college. So yeah. you can't just sort of bring rusty metal home and lay it on the kitchen table and start going. Well, you can. Yeah. You can do what you like, but it's, it's your kitchen. But uh, it's, uh, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's tougher than, you know, getting uh, some paper and some ink together and making some images. Yeah, it wasn't ideal. It was actually a little living room where I had my big sheets of metal with um, enamel paint and white spirit and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's not not an ideal scenario. Whereas you know pencils, an a, yeah, an A3 pad and a, <laughs> and a, fine a nice of colouring pencils uh, is <laughs> yeah is, is not as uh, not as hardcore really at all. And also, there's the you know as a married man, you 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 know you're sharing your living space. It's not just a case of you. Uh, having to deal with various odours coming from materials, it's uh, your other half as well. And there's also, I think also, that's it's a tribute to, to comics as a form in that they are, at their, their, their heart, very simple things to make, aren't they? You can get very basic drawing materials, put it onto paper, fold it, staple it or not, and, uh, you know, make a, a, a book of some kind. Yeah, I mean, I think... This this was this was going back a while now. So this was like 2004, 2005. So I think things were still slightly more tricky in terms of self-publishing and you know using software than they are now. And I, I didn't really have a clue. You know, I, I, I drew it out first, and then I photocopied it to make it smaller, which totally destroyed the nuances of the line. Yeah. yeah. And then and then scanned the photocopy, which was not really the best way of going about it for my for my first comic. And, um, a learning you know, just, curve. It's a learning curve. Isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a lot easier nowadays with uh, with the technology that we've got. And just the fact of like digital publishing becoming much more practical in terms of cost effective for someone to you know it's still expensive to to fund a print run yourself, but it's more doable than it would have been sort of ten twenty yeah, years ago. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can remember that there was a still still a few people when we were just starting out. There was still a few people that were saying, you know, these were. These were live or print runs that they had to uh, they had to do all the separations for themselves and stuff. It's, yeah, yeah. Makes me sound old, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no. Uh, what what uh, the other side of that is? One exciting time to be alive to watch the oh, yeah. uh, industry transform itself in front of you. We were on the forefront of a of a brave new world. It's, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> There's also as well, I think, the the freedom of especially self-publishing that comics offers where with that particular thing with, with your initial offerings it's not a case of you, you you've got to sort of explain it away to a publisher or an editor or try and prove that you know there's a guaranteed number of units is going to sell to a particular market it's very much you know with that first sort of flush you can sort of just release uh, a lot of of ideas out there yeah i think that's right and i think that's one thing you know it's it's a bit like the actor writing you know writing a play for themselves or whatever that you, you know as a as a fine artist you're relying on gallery owners and you know patrons and these things to sort of validate validate your work whereas you know you can just bash out a bash out a comic and uh, it's it's out in the world so yeah it's, it's um, you know it was nice to nice to do something like that although um, you know, I think I think I went a bit too far in uh, in the sort of extreme direction when I look back at um, Banal Pig One. There's there's some things in there that kind of make me wince a little bit now. But... <laughs> Just in <laughs> terms know. of like the tone, or 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I sort of, um, I did get it all out there in terms of, you know, there's some sort of uh, boundary, boundary pushing uh, bits in there that, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing now. But then again, the flip side of that is you're going to get invited onto illustrious podcasts to talk about sex. <laughs> They're going to just assume that you're some like uh, Michelle Welbeck of uh, the UK uh, self-publishing scene. Yeah, I don't know who that is, but yeah, <laughs> he's a, a French writer who seems to get himself in trouble quite regularly on like five yearly right. intervals doing uh, transgressive work in France. For all my fun <laughs> words about the um, practicalities of comics and the amount of freedom they give you and and how simple they can be to put together. At the Royal College, you met Gareth Brooks, who is a man who is determined to throw that to one side and make comics in increasingly more intricate and involved and complicated ways, isn't he? He is, but it wasn't like that in the early days, if you've seen any of his man-man comics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what a journey he's been on. (laughs) What a journey. Started off with stick men and then went, what if I just embroidered a whole comic? Well, he's he's always been like that, you know, he's... he's, um, his fine art was about making making art in the most complicated possible way as well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a theme that's that's continued through his work. And with uh, um, you met at the Royal College, is that right? Yeah, we were on the same course, sort of started at the same time and, and hit it off really. So. Yeah, I did wonder what the sort of the dynamic was. Was it a case of you just got chatting or were you like foisted together on a project and just realised you were sort of kindred spirits in that way? Yeah, well, um, yeah, we were just, like I say, we are on the same course and when we were sort of, um, when we were introducing our work right at the beginning of the term, I sort of, uh, you know, identified, like I say, a kindred spirit and, uh, you know, we, we just became we became good friends and bonded over random things and he, he taught me a lot about French literature and uh, the, the classics and stuff and uh, I don't know what I taught him, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how to uh, move on from those stickman figures? Obviously, that was. Yeah. Uh, and, and you both sort of took your first steps into making comics around the same time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, well, he did. He, he wrote a story for for Bernal Pig One. He wrote like a, a poem that I illustrated that was kind of in the style of Rupert the Bear, or you know, that's that sort of old fashioned thing. But obviously, had a bit of a contemporary twist on it. Yeah. Soon after that, he thought I'll, I'll have a go at that myself and. Uh, started producing those the man man comics and uh as you say he sort of collaborated with you on uh, the banal pig stuff and, and featured things in there um yeah was it also a case of you you two not quite pushing each other but sort of inspiring each other as you're going along sort of learning new things about the form and and formatting and, and as you say things like uh technology and reproduction and stuff like that you know as much as anything it was about sort of um the business side of things as well you know so we do We'd do fairs together and, you know, back in those days, it was the web and mini comics thing and, you know, Thought Bubble hadn't even started back uh, back then. But yeah. like stuff like Birmingham and Brighton were the, were the sort of first first things we were doing. But it was just like learning what, what sort of the business was and what sold and how to how to produce things and all that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a, a quite a steep learning curve there, I think, in terms of just things like price points and the practicalities of like hosting a table at a show for a day, like what you need to do, what you need to have, what you need to be ready for. One thing uh, I just brought to mind that um, one one thing we did, um, Gareth was selling hand-drawn shapes and it was a, a blank postcard that he'd drawn like either a square, a circle or a triangle on 
and he was selling those for a quid. <laughs> and uh, that was one of his best uh, business ventures. <laughs> it was it was worth a punt. Was this this is around the same time as Steak Man, was it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Man Man. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that was the early days. I think he was still uh, he was still bringing a bit of his uh, conceptual art to the uh, to the table there. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, realistically, it's worth a go in it. Like the worst that can happen is you've spent literally ten seconds <laughs> ruining like five p's worth of materials. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you sold one. You know, your quid's in. Or a quid. A quid in, I suppose. And you learn by your mistakes, don't you? No, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'm just... And that was... I'm guessing that was a one-show deal that that was tried at. Oh, I, I, you never know. <laughs> I can only remember up one, but... You go to his you know. table now, he's still got a little pile in the corner. It doesn't say 821, but if anyone does pick him <laughs> up, he's like, that is a pound. Maybe, maybe so, yeah. I think I've got a few of them, actually. Just... <laughs> That got you know mixed up with all the crap at the end of the day. <laughs> I'll get him to uh, invoice you. It's probably the easiest way to do it, and just like yeah. pay part of the money over. <laughs> with inflation, they must be worth one pound five p now. Are they, are they still mint? Did you bang them up immediately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in what's that lucite or something? <laughs> Slab it. Just seal it fully in plastic. <laughs> exactly. Keep it out of the light. Don't let that get faded. No, well, they're not on display, put it that way. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things about comics, particularly starting out, is you, you do, people do like to collaborate and team up with people, you know, for practical reasons and for sort of creative reasons. Um, another collaborator, I'm, I'm assuming, was around the same time is Jemima von Schindelberg. Would that, would that be yeah. right in the, in the timeline? Yeah, that's quite early on, isn't it? Yeah, we did, we did a couple of books, I think. The second one was in 2009, so... The first one must have been sort of 2005, 2006. But yeah, that was just someone who we sort of had a bit of a chat at um, a Bristol con. And uh, she she emailed me and we sort of just had a bit of a back and forth in terms of a story idea. And it, it came from that really. But I think that was a good thing at the time because it kind of, it, it got me, it was away from the kind of style of, of Banal Pig and something into a bit more, a bit more thoughtful and a bit more in, in, into a different style and, you know, a bit, for, a bit more thoughtful. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah, that's the other value of things like comic shows, obviously, is the practical thing of trying to sell comics and, and make money. But there's also the, the sort of social aspect, which then can, you know, easily turn into the, the creative aspect as well. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good scene back then. You know, there's a, there's a few of us that kind of worked quite quite a lot together, like um, Ollie East. Back in the day, we 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 sort of had, had a quite tight knit community in terms of you know the shows that we do and uh, you know, what we thought about and trying to push things forward and all that. And also sort of making change yourself because one of the things I read about was uh, you and going back to the top of the show, uh, Hugh setting up the Leeds uh, Alternative Comics Festival as well. Yeah, that's right. And that was just born out of the fact that there wasn't really anything in Leeds apart from Thought Bubble. And obviously that's a sort of mega event. I mean, we just wanted to do something a bit more small and humble, modest, that we could get the people, you know, the, the sort of local comics community involved with. You know, our, our sort of mindset with that was just make it as kind of straightforward as possible you know everything was the path of least resistance it worked out quite well we did we did five and we, we did them sort of every every six months or so 
yeah, they're, they're always they're always good, and because it, it was literally free, you know, the the venue didn't charge us anything. We, you know, the posters we we got for for free, and um, you know, all the, all the rest of the promotion was done on social media. So it was really really easy to to organise, really. And when we got there, it was a case of whoever's there, pick your table and and get yourself set up. You know, it was all right. sort of first come first served really straightforward you know it was a quite small um, quite small event there was probably you know maximum about sort of 15 16 people there um you know just in the corner of a corner of a pub but that was that was again that was inspired by something that we did we did this zine fair in bradford me and hugh and there was only about sort of 10 or 12 people there but we noticed that everyone because there was so few people there Everyone spent quite a lot of time at each table, you know. Each table had a value and, you know, because there wasn't that much to see, you know, they were more important, if you like. So that's, that's the kind of ethos that we, that we went with. And it worked really well, I think, you know, everyone had a good, everyone had a good day and it's free. So what's, what's to lose? Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, like, Thought Bubble is a tremendous show but is like, you know, massively oversubscribed. And there's always going to be a lot of people who are not necessarily going to get a table at Thought Bubble, but a smaller event, something a bit more, as you say, you know, locally themed, locally based. Uh, You've got a a greater chance of of getting in. There's value in that as well, isn't it? Just giving people. There's also a thing as well of like, I think it would be horrible for someone's first show to do as a creator to be Thought Bubble, just in terms of, the overwhelming scale of the whole operation, you know, it's, I think it's good to sort of do like a band, isn't it? You don't want your first gig to be Wembley. You have no idea how, like, you know, what the sort of sound level should be. Yeah, exactly. And I think from a, from a seller's point of view, there's, there's some maths in, in terms of the amount of exhibitors versus the amount of punters. So if there's a few hundred exhibitors and a few thousand punters, then that's only 10 to one, you know, so a small event, you only need a hundred people to come and you've got that same sort of balance. You've got the same sort of, you know, chances of connecting with, with customers and, and, you know, making sales, which is kind of what it's all about. I think also, uh, it's a great thing to do where, as you say, one of part of your sort of impetus for doing it was just seeing that there was a, a need for it and that it would be something, you know, again, I've seen you mention in interviews that, you felt the north of England was underrepresented in terms of comic shows. There was space for another show of this size that would uh, work. And it, again, that's something I think that ties into sort of like self-publishing the small press scene. The idea of oh, here's something that could be done. Why don't we do it? Rather than yeah. sort of you know just saying oh, it's a shame that it isn't happening. Yeah, I mean that's that's literally what it was. I mean it came from my own desire to have another event in the in the calendar. You know. And we just we just got on with it, really. Uh, what was the venue, or, or was it different venues each time? It was a place called um, Nation of Shopkeepers, which is kind of a, a trendy gastropub type place, um, just behind the behind the town hall. So again, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't like upstairs and in a back room. It was sort of plonked in the middle of the pub. So anyone just coming in randomly to go to the pub would have the opportunity to come in as well. And that's, you know, that was the other element of it, trying to introduce people to it that wouldn't 
um, wouldn't necessarily seek it out for themselves. And as I've only been to Leeds once, so I don't know the the, the city, uh, you know, incredibly well. But the town hall is it's a pretty central location as well, isn't it? So it's not going to be a difficult place to get to in terms of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was one of the things. You know, we wanted to make it quite accessible. You know, city centre place as easy to find. So, I mean, we were lucky because they didn't want any money for for staging it and all that sort of thing. You know, they were they they host quite a lot of gigs and you know they do other stuff like that. So. Uh, you know they were quite quite open to it, so we were kind of lucky in that regard. Because I'm not sure how easy it is just to find a venue for free that's in a city setting location. But yeah, we got away with it. <laughs> I think with comics as well, there's a nice thing where the actual the work itself, like there's obviously a, a sort of immediate illustrative decorative aspect to it. So that's a, I think a nice thing for venues like that. They can get some nice photos to put out on social media. Um, that immediately make the place look a bit sort of special and exciting. You know, we did, we did some nice posters for them as well, and uh, yeah, I think it it sort of, if, if not boosted the profile, that fed it, fed into it. And it's I, I think also just good for venues like that as well to sort of demonstrate that they are flexible in what they do and how they can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2012, you were the runner-up in the Jonathan Cape Observer Comica graphic short story competition have i named every one of the parties involved i think so yeah i think that's, that's <laughs> true. you've got them all in there yeah no that was that was really good because 2012 was a bit of a weird year for me because i gave up my job at the beginning of 2012 and i thought you know my job was absolutely terrible and i thought I'll, I'll give it a go you know try to be self-employed try and make some money from my art and stuff and it started out it started out pretty well but I was making money from being a copywriter rather than from my art. And that, that went all right for a couple of months. And then the copywriting dried up. And I wasn't really making any money elsewhere. So I was getting a bit disheartened with it. And because I had a bit of time, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go in for the Observer thingy prize. And, um, yeah, to, to get to get the second place was, was pretty good because it was kind of, you know, coming at a time where I was ready to sack it all off and... Uh, just think, you know, this is this is not really ever going to go go anywhere. So um, yeah, that was good, and I went to went down to London and had a chat with Paul Gravette about it, and everyone was nice to me for, <laughs> for ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's a tremendous strip, uh, Ieti, which is still uh, online. I, I found it easily enough, uh, and I would yeah. recommend people having a look. Uh, there's one particular panel uh, just after. Uh, the Yeti has slid down the mountain. He just shakes his head to sort of knock the snow off. So yeah, yeah tremendous, really, really good. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm really proud of that. I think that's um, you know it still still holds up. I, I think just in terms of you know the format that they impose on you, like the four yeah. pages. I think it just it just worked having like the big final page reveal and sort of playing with the scale of it all because they were you know because it was newspaper sized pages, so it's quite a big quite a big sort of canvas that you that you're working on and um yeah I, I i'm i'm really proud of that i think it's one of my one of my best things that i've done i did i did enter that competition a few times before and uh yeah didn't really get anywhere the first one was a, a, just a banal pig strip which funnily enough they didn't uh i didn't go far <laughs> but yeah i think that one was kind of universal and had a touch of the sublime about it enough to yeah. uh, to get people to like it. 
I think also with competitions like that, you know, I would always say to people, they're worth entering just because I think there's there's a good practical thing to, as you say, it's an odd sort of remit in terms of page size and the number of pages, yeah. but sort of you're working to, you're being given something to work to, which is useful in terms of like working to a deadline, working to the restrictions of the number of pages, working to the size of the pages. So, you know, it's good, uh, a good practical exercise, I think, for, for, for comic creators to do. And obviously, you know, if you do well in the competition, your uh, strip gets into a national newspaper, which is never going to be, and on their website, which also has, you know, decent traffic. One, one thing, though, that, that still irks me to this day is that um, my, dad, my dad printed it out at his work, and he printed it out two-sided. So each page of it was double-sided with, with the same image on it. And um, when I was cutting it out, I scraped some of the image with the ruler on one of the sides. But I thought, well, it won't matter because obviously they'll pick the good side to take photos of and use as their, uh, you know, use as their thing. And of course, they use the the side that had the script script image on it. So it still still bugs me to this day that they didn't think, oh, well, we'll use the other side that's, that's pristine rather than that. That is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, they are... If they're not print professionals, who are print professionals? Yeah, well, it, it's my fault. I should have wrote in big letters, don't use this side, it's got a big scrape on it. You probably thought about it and then thought, do you know what? I don't yeah. need to tell them how to print things in the newspaper. Oh, I do. I do need to tell things how And, of course, um, Yeti himself turns up in other work. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I'd already started Untitled Apes Epic Adventure by that time. I started that as a as a webcomic in like 2010. And um throughout 2010 I was I was keeping up with it and doing like weekly weekly pages pretty much and I think I dropped off in sort of summertime to do a to do a print comic. And then every so often I'd come back to it and you know do do a few more pages. But I think by about 2012 Actually, because I had a lot of time on my hands, I did I did update it a bit more, but it was kind of you know really really hit and miss when I'd be doing it. But yeah, he, he was he was one of the characters kind of from the beginning because I had these when I was sort of devising it, I had these set pieces that that I wanted the story to to kind of rotate around, and that was um, you know the meeting with the Yeti was was one of them. And in terms of the project itself, you know, with regards to to Avery Hill, was that something where you uh, got in touch with Dave or Ricky and said, I'm working on this thing, I think it could be a good book, or did one of them approach you? I'm never quite sure about, this is all before my time with the company, so I'm never quite sure about the mechanics of how people got in touch. By that time, or by the time this came about, Avery Hill had re- reprinted Manly Boys and done the new Comely Girls comics, because we'd already done Manly Boys, me and Gareth, and Gareth was talking to him about doing something. So Gareth sort of sorted that out with, with Ricky, I think. And we did a new, a, a new one to go with that, which was Comely Girls, which is kind of, you know, a pastiche of, of 1950s boys and girls comics. But after, after that, it was a, I think it was a thought bubble. I was talking to Dave about, you know, what else I'd got. And he, he said that Owen Pomeroy had, had sort of said how much he liked Untitled Ape, so we sort of talked about how to, uh, you know, what the potential of, of making that into a book because I'd always sort of envisaged it as a book, 
and it and it went from there really. I mean, I think it took another. You know, we talked about it one year, signed the contract the next year, and <laughs> you know, delivered it the year after that. So even in sort of getting it getting off the ground, it, it took a long time. It's the breakneck but, pace of uh, the UK comics, isn't that? Well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So just six six short years after I started it, I got um, you know it was it was finished and ready to print. And in terms of the 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 premise of the story, do you want to just tell the listeners what the essential idea is of uh, Untitled Ape's epic adventure? Untitled Ape is a what I describe as a ghost beast. Is a big purple gorilla type animal man thing um, with a sort of spooky face. And he's friends with Cat, who's just a kind of obnoxious sidekick type <laughs> character. And Untitled Ape has a dream which in which his family is in danger, so he wants to go and rescue them. And that's kind of how the story kicks off. But as, as the story progresses, you find out about Untitled Ape's dark past and how he was employed as a henchman of hell and he did all sorts of horrible things before he before he escaped, and then um, the the people from hell want to want to get him back, so they they start chasing him, and it's kind of going on as they're as they're trying to get to Ape's family, and they're getting chased and stuff. They're going all all across the world. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, like very funny, but also poignant as well in 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 places. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I did want to get a bit of bit of pathos in there, you know. Those Pixar films always make you beef, don't they? So uh, <laughs> wanted to get a bit, of, you know, another layer in there. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was, as the title promises, there is the epic scale of their adventure where they're going as high as possible, as low as possible, you know, across different parts of the world. But like at certain points as well, there's these very small moments between like a mother and a son and a husband and wife. There's these small personal moments that really sort of ground it for a second before the world sort of explodes and opens up again. Yeah, I think that's, that was important. And I think that sort of added added something to the story that you do get these sort of tangential little mini stories going on there as well. Because the first, when I started the webcomic, I was just doing it sequentially and it was quite an A to B story. You know, we didn't see these little extra moments. And, um, you know, I think adding a bit of depth in that way you know, just gives it that gives it that extra bit of pathos. Just being bringing things up to uh, more current projects. One of the things I enjoyed following in December was your charity drawathon. Do you want to tell people about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing at the moment. I'm working on a book, and um, you know, I've been been sort of working on that quite exclusively. And uh, a few months ago, I just thought, uh, you know, I want to want to do something different. I want to mix it up a bit. A few years ago, I did a thing where it was just like, you know, people would suggest things that I could draw, you know, just to just to do a lot of different things. And I enjoyed that. But then I just thought, well, can I can I make money out of this? And I thought, well, maybe maybe I can sell these drawings. And I thought, well, it's, can I can I do something good? And, you know, then the idea was that I'd, I'd sell these drawings and then give all the money to charity. So the drawathon was was 20, 20 minute drawings in one day and I was asking people for like a minimum donation of 10 pounds for the drawings. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was an intense day, but uh, I really enjoyed it. 
I thought, you know, 20, 20 minutes times 20 is about seven hours. So I thought, oh, I'll be done by, if I start in the morning, I'll be done by tea time, you know, five o'clock-ish. <laughs> and uh started about nine o'clock and I finished about half past eight. So it was a bit, <laughs> was a bit more labor intensive than I, than I sort of predicted. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to, because I was doing stuff in different styles as well. It was mostly sort of pen and pen and colored pencil, but you know, there was all sorts, there was Marvel characters and just random suggestions and caricatures and all sorts. But I think my favorite was um, Mark Pierce, one, one of my old friends from Bristol, who's, who's a pretty good comic comic maker in his own right. He, he just suggested a cool character. So um, <laughs> I came up with Cool Wolf, who, uh, who was the coolest, uh, coolest character I could think of. And he had sunglasses and a, a cap that was backwards and <laughs> a patterned jumper and a leather jacket and ironed jeans and uh, rollerblades. So, you know... <laughs> Top to one. Get, yeah, exactly. T to B. <laughs> the icing on the cake is that his um, his catchphrase is "Chill down, babies." <laughs> <laughs> He's a hero for our times. <laughs> exactly, and I think I might just abandon what I'm doing now and you know just work on a just all cool wolf. All cool wolf all the time. <laughs> Give the people exactly. what they want. You know, it's a remarkable range, as you say, of topics and, and styles as well. I was, you know, incredibly impressed by, considering it was like, when I say just a day's work, it was 12 hours of intensive drawing for you. But the fact that yeah. you could, across a day, adapt your style so much, I thought was, um, yeah, remarkable showcase of your work. Yeah, still still got a few fine art, uh, <laughs> fine art chops from, from back <laughs> in the day. So, it's, yeah, doing a bit of uh, real drawing as well as, as well as some silly stuff. So, yeah. And in terms fun. of your, your, your new big project, I don't know how much um, you can or want to talk about it right now. I've had a chance to have a look in it. It looks incredible so far. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something I'm working on with my wife. It's, it's a story that she's been sort of working on for a while. After, after Untitled Ape finished, when I was totally ignoring her, um, <laughs> we sort of... <laughs> The compromise of me doing more work was that if we were working on something together, then, you know, it would be a, a collaborative thing. We'd, we'd both get we'd both get some out of it creatively. So, so you're you know, co-plotting Cool Wolf issue one right now. That will be out in time for... <laughs> yeah, she's, she's working on Cool Wolf with me. <laughs> <and then>. <laughs> <laughs> but this this story is... Uh, basically, the scenario is, is based on Julie's uh, childhood in Scotland, so she was kind of an English person in Scotland, in, in sort of deepest, darkest rural Scotland as well. And she she got a bit of abuse for being an English person for no for no real reason other than that's that's a thing. But as, aside from that, the, the sort of scenario is is the sort of starting point from the story. But after that, it's a kind of it's a narrative, a totally different narrative. It's not autobiographical in any way, really, other than, you know, getting those sort of nice details of of what we remember, really. And, uh, you know, having that set in the place because it's set in um, 1991. No, as you say, just having someone who can feed in with the sort of the, the feel of the place and the scenario itself and then using that as a springboard to explore a larger story, is, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's the, the main character is is sort of, 12-ish years old so it's about you know one of the themes in it is is kind of that 
tension between adulthood and childhood, you know, whether it be through puberty or just through the relationships between adults and children and, and that sort of thing. And there's a, a, a change in the art style as well. You've, you've sort of changed things up there, um, you know, to give, I guess, a contrast. It's a different tone of, of, of the story to Untitled Eight, but also you, you, I think I, I read or heard you talking about, maybe with Hugh on, on Sudfast, about the sort of intensive colouring style of Untitled Eight and how that was very sort of time-consuming for you. I wanted to do something totally different, and it's it's taken a while to evolve to this stage, Um the, the book as it stands now because um, originally I was doing it in coloured biro and collaging the pops of colour I think that worked really well as sort of images in its own right but in terms of scanning it in when there's layers and layers of, of, of collage and being able to sort of be really specific about the the finer details like the speech bubbles and the you know facial expressions and stuff it was absolutely impossible. So that kind of evolved into a sort of a middle ground between the kind of thing I was doing with, with Untitled Ape and, and this more sort of lean style where there's just certain pops of colour that kind of give a bit of, you know, that they're either sort of give an idea of, of a theme or they pick out a certain detail that adds, that adds value to the, to the image. How will people find you? online what's the best links to give out um, on twitter at banal pig if you put banalpig.com in it'll uh, it'll take you to my website which is kind of it's kind of a bit different now it's it's kind of the the archive of when when blogs used to be a thing so i, I, I do put stuff on there every now and then but um yeah it's not you have a look on my twitter page that's that's usually where the news is or you can you know google my name and, and you'll find find stuff about me, I think. I haven't done this as an experiment, but I'd imagine if you type banal pig into Google anyway, you're going to be on the front page somewhere along the line. It's a good, it's a good, uh, yeah. it's a good, good brand. It's a strong Googleable brand, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think Gareth struggles with the fact that you know there's a country singer called oh, Gareth Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, even if you you, I've done it a few times and I've sort of checked back. To make sure I haven't mistyped his name, but I've spelled his name right. His name is so ungoogleable. Even if you type in Gareth Brooks, you're going to get a couple of country and western ballads. <laughs> yeah, Max. exactly. So, I mean, that that was that was a lucky thing that one of my first characters was Banal Pig, and it kind of that became the the brand. And it is very unique. You know, you don't you don't accidentally write the phrase the phrase <laughs> Banal Pig. <laughs> Depends what sort of day you're having. I mean, it's uh... what kind of farmyard you're running. <laughs> but yeah i would suggest people having a look just for your, your twitter feed to, to start because you do post a lot of uh good stuff on there a couple of things um i stumbled across on there that i really enjoyed posters you were selling uh my favorite being actually uh let's do uh, a, a shout out for the movies as well which is a selection of panels with dialogue I, I think the premise is dialogue you hear in movies you don't really hear in real life, isn't it? Like things that are yeah. commonly said in movies, but no one ever actually says. Which just, is uh, just total uh, cliches, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a bit, uh, um, you know, it's a great idea, but also beautiful image as well, really sort of striking and would look great uh, on a wall. But my favourite has to be uh, Street Fighter Two from Memory, uh, which is you drawing the characters from Street Fighter Two, and as the sort of uh, the page goes down things get a bit more fuzzy, don't they? 
in terms of who's there and what they're doing. They do, yeah. Which <laughs> features another one of my great unexplored characters, Gordon Pease, um, <laughs> which is just some fat man who gets into all these scripts. And I've got loads of little story, uh, 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 you know, uh, ideas for him, but I've never quite found the right vehicle. If you've got a Mega Drive, he's like one cheat code away, I'm sure. If you just put in up, down, BB, left, you're yeah. going to get Gordon Pease and just smash everyone up. And his tie like flaps about as he as he bobs up and down waiting to, <laughs> waiting to fight. <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, you're welcome. I've had a lovely time. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> Best of luck with everything, and we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Steve for talking to us, and thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.